We've spent the last five weeks preparing for something great. That was our sermon series. That was the, the set of messages we've passed through, preparing for something great, preparing for this 100-day effort that begins this Saturday. Now, we are seeking God to do something tremendous. I want you to be sure of that. I am, uh, we as a church, we're, we're seeking God to do something unspeakably great in this effort, something truly astounding in this effort for his name's sake, for his glory, and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the way through, I keep thinking, what could he do? As this began to be an idea, as I, as I think God was leading us here, me here, I began to think, what could he do? What could he do? Really, he is God Almighty. What could he do? And I, I started answering that with another question that was posed to me. What couldn't he do? What couldn't he do? Could he exceed our expectations? Could he send the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the uttermost parts of the earth? Could it go all over the planet out of this effort? Could he fill this place up with people that need to hear the good news, with those that are excited about a risen Savior? Could he fill this place up? What, on, what about on the 73rd night on a Tuesday? Could he fill this place up? Could he change lives and homes and eternities? That's the business that he's in. That's what he does. What couldn't he do. So far, we've talked about why God doesn't move. That's where we started. We talked about the next week why we care if he moves. Why, what does it even mean to us? Why do we care in this day if God moves? And then we got practical. and We talked about our steps. What do we do? If we're preparing for this, what do we do as followers of Jesus Christ? If we want to see something astounding in this day, what is it that we would do? We saw the practical steps. We pray, we prepare, talking about us, our hearts as individuals, and we preach. We declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. Well, today we are putting this all together, seeking his great Movement Today, that's going to include as part of that the observance of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask this morning if you would stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer to begin our, our time this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come. And we come, each of us, as a sinner, a rebel, a person that, that neglected you, that turned against you, a person that needs forgiveness, restoration. We come as believers today as the church, those that have been redeemed, saved because of our lamb that is worthy, or who is worthy, Lord. We, we come today and we seek your hand, we seek your face, we seek your leading, we seek your empowerment, we seek your wisdom, we seek your direction. And Lord, we seek your movement. You are gracious. You are mighty to save. And so we seek your movement. Lord, I pray as we go into these hundred days that, that you would be known, that you would be exalted. I pray that the folks that hear each of us as individuals, that we would draw closer to you, that this would be a landmark event in our life, that we would never be the same. 
We pray for the gospel to go out. We pray for lives to be saved, redeemed in the hearing of the gospel. Lord, I pray in this hour now that you would lead us in this hour, that we would draw closer to you in this hour, that you would be blessed and known and exalted in this hour. Lord, we come and we tell you are our answer. You are our hope. You are our savior. You are our king. We exalt you today, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today, as we come to this juncture, I I want us to think about this morning how God works. And I've been thinking about that and and preparing for this and and seeking his hand and, and hoping for something Tremendous hoping for something that would exceed our expectations. And, and I want us to think this morning very, very carefully about how God works. In our Bible, we have the recorded written history that God wants us to have. And understand, that's what we have. This is the literal account. This is the recorded written history of, of, uh, that God wants us to have. In the Bible... We can go to that written, recorded history, and we can see what God has done. In the Bible, we can see and we can study how he works. Now, if you think about that, to understand how God works, that is a really a tall order. That is a huge subject. That is a deep subject. But this morning, over and over again, as we, as we look at how God works, we see Two reoccurring characteristics. And man, we we could probably spend two or three years talking about this subject, looking at God's word about this subject, but this morning for the sake of our study, for, for our purpose, I want us to notice there are two reoccurring characteristics of how God works. And those are this. How God works, number one, is often unlikely. It is often unlikely. And how God works, it is almost always, number two, unorthodox. Unorthodox. That means not normal. And so we see these two reoccurring patterns, these these two reoccurring characteristics of how God works. It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. It is not normal. It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. Think about creation, his beginning work. How does God create? Does he assemble things? Does he gather the resources together? Does he build things from those resources? Isn't that how we create? Isn't that the orthodox way to create something? You take something else and you assemble something from it. No, that's not what he does. He speaks all things into existence. He creates everything out of nothing at his spoken word. It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. Now we see apart from God, it is absolutely impossible. But in the work of creation, we see it is unlikely and it is unorthodox. Think for a second, if you will, about Abraham. God desires a people. He desires, the Bible says, for himself a nation. 
And from that nation, he will be known. Through his dealings with that nation, he will be revealed. From that nation, there will be the Messiah would emerge. From that nation, all other nations would be blessed in that nation. So how do you start that lineage? God desires a, a people. God desires a nation. How would you start that lineage? He starts with a 90-year-old man married to a 90-year-old woman past the age of childbearing who was not able to have kids in the time, the age of childbearing. She had never had a child. You find a woman not able to be a mother. Now listen, oh, how she wanted to be a mother 90 years old and she sees her, her contemporaries and they're playing with, with their grandkids and perhaps their great-grandkids. Oh, she'd allowed to have been a mother. You find a person that couldn't be a mother and you make her the promise that she'll be the mother of nations. It was a promise so absurd that Sarah laughed upon hearing it. The Bible records she actually laughed out loud at the promise of God. Ten years later, Genesis chapter 21, beginning in the first verse. Listen. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham, listen, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in this old age. Oh, the joy that she has. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. How does God work? It is unlikely, and it is unorthodox. What about God delivering his people from the mighty Egyptian Pharaoh? Surely God would raise up. Surely he would grow up a tremendous army. Surely he would train that army. Surely he would send a mighty military leader to lead that army. Surely that's how you win the victory. You'd be swift and victorious in battle. Surely that's how you would secure your freedom. No, God finds an 80-year-old man really hiding in the desert tending sheep this man, he's not a great leader. In fact, he's not confident that he can even speak in front of people. God calls Moses from the burning bush. Exodus chapter 10. Therefore come now, and I will send you, Moses, you, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. How does God work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. How does he work? That is how he works. We'll go on. As they've entered the promised land, as they are possessing, taking possession of that land, 
How do they fight the established strong people in that land? People that were equipped for battle. People behind mighty walls that were prepared for the purpose of war. Very simply, how will we take a ragtag bunch of people and lead them to survive, much less conquer this enemy there in the land? Remember God tells us of Joshua, old faithful Joshua. He says, you will lead the sons of Israel. He tells them you will lead them around the walls of Jericho and you will march around those walls by the world standard. Listen, that is a terrible idea by the world standard. That is no plan at all. You take the the army, the sons of Israel, and you march around this wall. What a ridiculous plan that is. For seven days, you'll march around this wall. Not five, it doesn't fall then. Not on the sixth day, it doesn't fall then. You'll show back up. You'll go around these walls. On the seventh day, you'll make seven trips around that wall. How unlikely that is. Why not the third time? Why not the fifth time? How unlikely that is. That is ridiculous. Joshua chapter six, it says, and so the people shouted. And the priests blew their horns and the wall fell down flat. In verse 20 it says, and they took the city. Folks understand, listen, that is our God. That is real, that's not folklore, that's not some superstition. How does God work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox when he works. Remember the prophet Jerubbabel? And if you don't, he's better known as Gideon. Remember Gideon and the army of Israel? And whenever they're set to fight the fierce Midianites in the valley by the spring of Harad, remember he shows up and he has 32,000 fighting men ready to go. He has 32,000 men prepared for war. They are zealous for the cause of war. Finally, they have an imposing army. Here they are, and there they are with this army. It's an imposing sight. Surely that's how God would fight. Surely that's how God would win the battle. Remember, he says, Gideon, that's too many. Remember, at the first cut, 22,000 go home. 22,000, it says, returned to their tents. They go home. But now there's 10,000. There's still 10,000. Maybe these are the brave ones. They chose not to go home. These are the the chosen ones. Surely these are the best of the fighters. This is enough. 10,000 of your bravest men. Surely this is how God would win the battle. Remember God says that's too many, Gideon. And they have a test there by the stream flowing out of that spring. And when the test is over, there are only 300 men that remain. Only 300 men. You remember the account formerly the timid Gideon. He hears the word of God. Upon hearing the word of God in Judges chapter 7 verse 15, he says, Arise, 300 men, arise, for the Lord has given the camp of the Midians into your hands. Gideon there boldly declares upon hearing the word of God, victory before they even break camp as they rise up from this creek, this stream. The Bible tells us In God's power, they strike down the Midian camp. They bring the heads of the two leaders back to their camp. How does God work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. 
That is how God works. Let me tell you today, I could go on and on. The Bible is full of such accounts, full of them. I could go on and on. Let me give you one more. Remember the mighty enemy of the the children of Israel? Remember the, the great foe, the thorn in their side, the Philistines? Remember their champion, Goliath. The Bible says that he was six cubits in a span. That would be nine and a half feet tall. Remember the the champion of the Philistines, nine and a half feet tall. The Bible says that that his armor would have weighed 125 pounds, that his sword alone was 15 pounds. The Bible says that the, the spear, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. He was an intimidating killer. That's what the Bible says. From his youth, he was an intimidating killer, a warrior. So much so that no one in Israel would dare fight him. They would tremble in their boots. How do you defeat such a terrible enemy? How do you overcome such a terrible enemy? Do you remember the lunch delivery boy? Not even in the fight. Not even in the army. He's running an errand for his dad. Take their lunch to him. He's running an errand for his father. You remember the story. He takes five stones from the brook and he puts them in a pouch. And there he goes down into the valley. When everybody else stood back, he walks down in the valley and Goliath comes forward and meets him. And he says, the Lord does not deliver with spear or sword. Goliath is laughing at him. He's mocking him. He does not deliver with a sword or a spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord is what he says. And on this day, he will give you into our hand. Here's my favorite part of that entire account. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what he says. He doesn't fight the way everybody else does, but he fights in a way that when the dust settles, all the world will know there's a God in Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. He takes one of those smooth stones from his pouch. The Bible says this, and David prevailed over the Philistines. How does God work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. It's not what we would expect. It's not what the world would even plan or suspect. How does he work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. What are we asking today? What are we asking in the coming weeks? For God to work in our day, See the hopelessness of our day. See the despondency of our day. We're asking that God would work in our day. Well, maybe that was in old times. Maybe that was in an ancient time. We're asking that God would work today. We're asking for God to spread the gospel, the good news of a risen Savior. Hope is found in him. We're asking him to spread his gospel. We're asking that he would be glorified in our day, that the world would know there is a living God and a risen Savior. And all of that from Vernon, Texas. Are you serious? Do you know Vernon, Texas? Are you serious? From this pulpit, 
Surely there's a better pulpit than this. Surely there's a more visible pulpit than this. Surely there's many better preachers than this from this pulpit. In a day when people do not care, in a day when, when church attendance is of no concern, all of the things of the world would lead you somewhere else. In a day when no one is impressed by sermons, not anymore, they're not. In a day when God's word is ignored, when God's word is mocked, when it's ridiculed. In a day when people are busy and apathetic and they're hard-hearted. In a day when no one cares anymore. We're asking him to move here. The day when you announce we're going to preach for 100 days, the first question is why? Why would you do such a thing in these days? Let me remind you of the question. How does God work? Before you answer, let me give you one more example. Let me give you the greatest example. How do you save sinners in need of redemption? How do you purchase something no person can afford? How do you find hope and a peace in a world that's perishing in sin? How, how do you save sinners in need of redemption? Surely it would not be for the sinless dying for sinners. Surely it would not be in the creator himself sacrificing for the created. Surely that's not the plan. Surely it would not be for, for forgiveness and acceptance to be found in suffering and rejection. Surely that's not it. Surely life could not come from, from death itself. It couldn't spring forward from the finality of death. That's not even possible. How do you save sinners? Reading from the Gospel of John. And Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give to him slaps in the face. And so they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came following him 
and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings, wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up by a plate, in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. Let me ask you this morning, how does God work? It is unlikely and it is unorthodox. For God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Praise God for the unlikely. Praise God for the unorthodox. Praise God for our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how God moves. That's how God moves. 